Welcome to the Kyber Pass Podcast. I am your host, Paul Metzger, bringing you interviews with improvisers who have played at the Kyber Pass Cafe Thursday night music series. These are improvisers we try to present the deepest cats we can bring them to a live setting and record an interview with one of the musicians each week this week Jamal Moore out of Baltimore Uh, we cover a bit of his history and what he brings uh, to his instrument mainly saxophone but most of the other wind instruments as well flutes recorder uh clarinet and the like uh, so we have an interview with him coming up in just a moment i'll also have a short clip from their performance and this podcast is always is brought to you by the kyber pass cafe offering authentic food from Afghanistan. Okay, it's a tour of the sizzling kebabs and piquant chutneys of Afghan cuisine. So, without further hesitation, let's roll right into a sample of what was happening in concert which was uh, Jamal Moore, Davu Seru, and Mankwe in Dozi. Thank you. 
Where you started with what I understand you were hearing Coltrane and Ornette Coleman albums at home through your pops, or was that? Uh, that's funny. I don't recall putting the downbeat, but that is some of the backline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, coming up in the you know the Black Arts movement and hearing a lot of that uh, material from that period, and you know, uh, family was avid jazz collectors and admirers of the music. Um, also musicians as well and uh, you're saying inside your family like you yeah okay yeah parents were musicians uh, father was percussionist yeah mother did a uh, piano violin yeah but they didn't go that direction of becoming a full time professional musician they took other paths of careers you know becoming a business entrepreneur and HVAC technician and nursing things of that sort dick yeah and so from that being acculturated in that environment and hearing all that different cultural context of the music yeah. You know, I'm around it, surrounded by it. And then yeah. dealing with the local musicians that are there. I mean, we have a, like every major city has its own epicenter or cultural connection via a uh, drum circle or a music scene, mm -hmm. you know, different things like that. In Baltimore, we have a collective called a Park Vibe, which can uh, encompass drummers, percussionists, horn players, all kinds of instrumentalists. And it's historically been running for almost about 45 years now. And uh, this is one of the known drum circles in Baltimore. A lot of, every artist come through there. Every major artist has come through there, uh, major and minor, you know. And we have four or five generations of people coming through there, you know, uh, through that circle right there. And so with that right there, that's some of the grounding, getting into uh, more the percussionist side of work. And the horn work I entered into around probably elementary school. Mm -hmm. We got into initially playing clarinet first. Mm-hmm. Wanting to play sax, but there was not none offered at the time, so teacher gave me a clarinet. I started out on clarinet and eventually transitioned to alto clarinet in middle school, to alto sax, to flute, and then eventually playing alto through high school. And after that, you know, primarily working between sax, flute, and clarinet, and then getting a tenor later years, and always dealt with bamboo flutes, making my own flutes and experimenting with that. You know. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. Uh, so initially, from what I've read, uh, you. You were drawn to saxophone first, but couldn't get placed like in band with that instrument. So it became yeah. clarinet. Was that kind of what was happening? Yeah, you know, in an urban city schools, there are limited instrumentation you have. You yep. know, and uh, sometimes you may only have one or two instruments there are available. And if the, you know, you're coming in as a lower classman, the upper classman get advantage of it. So yeah, you know, teacher put me on clarinet, and uh, it was odd and different. But I greatly appreciate it because that's the foundation of all reads. Yeah. And it's usually best that any woodwind player start on a clarinet first, rather than start on a saxophone. Because mm -hmm. once you go to clarinet, you can go to any other read in there, even double reads, even though double read requires a different armature and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you heard something in the saxophone, but you started up through clarinet, which is, is a similar like mouthpiece yeah. and fingering. 
And so what, at that time, you're middle school, yeah? yeah. Or coming into high school through that zone. Yeah, that's uh, I transitioned to saxophone in middle school around, uh, let's say, eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's just a kid. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. It's, it's, again, it's a family vibe because in this path, my path has been a blessing because every teacher that came along has a major pivotal point in the development of a lot of artists in Baltimore City. Mm. And it just so happened that the middle school director had ties to my family by way of a church on, on my father's side and ran a choir. So when she seen me come through, I didn't know who she was at first. I had to go back home and tell the family, oh, yeah, we know who she is. And her family was notorious in the music and the choir and things. And so... Uh, Phenomenal, Mrs. Betty T. McLeod, who just retired from Baltimore City Public School, a teacher for almost 45 years. Wow. And a great clinician and technician. Mm. And can take any child and turn them into something mm -hmm. and give them hope and dreams. You know? And this was someone that you took lesson from or mentoring from? Or how, yes, what was your connection uh, we, to Macy, she didn't really do private instruction, but she did guide us, and we was doing band. Mm. So we had concert band, we had jazz band. Mm -hmm. And... With concert and jazz band, you know, it was a wonderful experience. We were dealing with like 40, 50 musicians at a time, you know, universal. And uh, a lot of my colleagues, well, a few of my colleagues came through that. And then we all split some way in high school. Some went to school for the performing arts, whereas I went to Frederick Douglass Senior High School, which is one of the notorious schools known for music in Baltimore City Public Schools. All right. You know, historically. You yeah. Know. Mm -hmm. and, so uh, then you're in high school. Yeah. You're, you've been, you've spent some time. Yeah playing and wh what are you thinking at that point because you're you're a young cat yeah late well, teens what like where do you see it going for you like what keeps you like hunkering down with your horn and putting in the the work music was a love and a passion mm -hmm. and uh you know with despite all the negativity and things going on around that one can get caught up in the streets with you know music was a way of peace and tranquility and it's something I love doing all along. You know, so while maintaining through high school, man, getting deeper and deeper peeling onion. Mm. You know, the band director there, uh, not forget Mr. David Burton, he gave me a real book, which at the time I learned what it was, but I had previously had a real book from years prior by way of a mentor of mine that gave me some sheet music to study from, which I didn't know what it was. So when I got to high school, he gave me a real book, and he didn't really break it down on how to really play across chord changes. Yeah. But it was... All the songs and I was like, oh man, well I know this is on all blues or I know this is on my favorite things, you know, I started singing, you know, I'll take the melody and play along with the CDs or albums at the time and or tape, you know, and then eventually uh self discovering and working with certain advanced players that was already ahead of me, uh, you know, we learned what chord changes was and how to play across chords and scales and get into a little bit of jazz harmony theory from that point and then, you know, which took me into the next level segue after post high school and going right into the world of playing. You know, eventually started going right into the scene and community and hooking up with different artists around the city. So you went right into, out of high school, you're getting into combo playing. Yeah, yeah I started with the combo. I actually started in high school. We had a jazz combo. In high school, we had a concert band. Mm. We had a marching band. We had a jazz band, woodwind choir, mm. uh, vocal choir, and um, jazz combo. And we had a program called Music Careers, which was for music majors. So I majored in music in high school. You know, eventually that program kind of morphed and mutated and folded in the years to come. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But now they have a new program there called Ramp, which is Recording Arts and Media Project, you know, which is actually revigorating the program. And they still have an instrumental program there, you know. So who are you listening to then? So, you know, you're 15, 16 through 18, high school. And then, like, were there albums or players or? I listened to everything. I absorbed everything I could get my hands on. You were just you know, a cat that was like, yeah. W- would you focus on horn players or was it broader than that? At that time, I would say it would be horn players. I didn't get into the broad perspective, really going in like studying drummers or bassists or pianists and mm-hmm. things like that until probably uh, undergrad years. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I had, I mean, there was piano players. It's just like the music just was, it was there. Yeah. So it's not like I was actually going into it from an academic standpoint, like I want to study this cat and it was surrounded, I was surrounded in music, so I heard it every day. Yeah. You know, the train, you know, it's funny because a lot of guys at the time, you know, were bent on Alan Holdsworth and the fusion movement and Michael Breckenham and, you know, going into, oh man, this is some heavy stuff, this is out, this is where it's at. And I'm like, you think that's heavy? The one we put on Meditations by the Train. Oh no, that's too out right there, that's too free, that's too out right there. I'm like, well, it's equivalently the same thing, even better, <laughs> you know, or going into furrow, stuff like that. So, you know, uh, that shows the direction of a lot of players and where we're at, you know. And the fun thing about coming through the 90s, man, you know, we have, in the prime of teen years, like I said, we're dealing with the modern contemporary sound. Mm. We got the boom bap hip-hop. Mm. You know, we got hip-hop being sampled from the Blue Note Jazz albums. James Brown samples that was coming out the late 80s with a lot of the uh, Public Enemy and stuff like that and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Bomb Squad and all them. And then you turn around and move into... Uh, after New Jack Swing era, you know, around 93, 94, we're getting down to the boom bap hip hop. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those albums, like Black Moon or different albums like that, you know, they, they come out of old Donna Bird samples, you know, Smith Wesson's guys, and, you know, hearing all those different samples. And, you know, you reflect back to my albums, like, oh man, this is already there. So it's funny, when you're practicing, you know, and you got guys in the neighborhood or whatever like that, you know, oh man, you know, you know, we're all the friends, and, you know, you're in the house practicing, and, oh man, you're practicing that jazz stuff. Little did they know the scenes they were practicing, they don't even realize where the sample was coming from. And they hear the originals, it blows their mind, you know. So it was a beautiful era, man, coming through the 90s and on. And then the constant growth and development, you, you know. You loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a beautiful time, you know. And then everything, like I said, you know, you're dealing with the modern and the old. You know, you had the old timers that come back and show a little bit of the bebop stuff, you know. And uh, we had, like I said, a wealth of information mm. to be surrounded by. You know, I was talking to a colleague uh, a couple weeks ago how, you know, where the younger generation of players, and it's not to necessarily talk down on them, but they have a different approach and aesthetic of how to learn the music now where they're not actually putting in that physicality of work. They have more availability now with uh, media, such as YouTube, whereas we didn't have no YouTube in the time. The internet was not even developed. It didn't develop until the late 90s, so we actually went to the libraries, took tapes and borrowed tapes and studied from tapes. Swapped out tapes, made copies of tapes, CDs, vinyl, whatever, get our hands on, you know. Our library in Minneapolis had a grand piano room mm-hmm. that you could go in with, with a music books or yeah. uh, an, another instrument. As they were aware of that's in that era. Yeah. People were hungry for that. Yeah. And the library was the spot. And it's like that in Baltimore. We have the Indian Pratt Library, Central Library. You can go up there now to find arts and get all kinds of scores. Yeah. You know, so I would take time. And that's another fun part, too, where we would challenge ourselves musically by reading other types of music. Mm. 
and doesn't have to retain uh, necessary to your instrument like you could take violin music or you know tuba music or something and play it on your instrument mm -hmm. without knowing what transposition was at the time yeah and build your chops up like that you know so mm -hmm. that was the fun aspect of it you know and like I said coming out of high school going right into the game the playing field you know I ran into a lot of players in the community and started working playing real heavy uh, you know while at the time I attended my first higher school of learning, which was a actual trade technical school called Rex Technical Institute, studying electronic technology. You know, and then while doing that by day and working by night and in between, just gigging in between, you know. Mm -hmm. And eventually getting into, and I've always been writing, you know, so writing and composing mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. You know, writing music out and self-teaching. The yeah. self-taught journey until I decided to finally say, okay, let's go to undergrad now and, uh, kind of settled in now, focused where I want to be at. You're, Not that I wasn't focused before. It was, uh, you know, figuring out, navigating, and also dealing with financial piece as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And also, like, 18, 17, that's pretty young to for someone to actually decide where they want to spend some college time. Yeah. And so you put a, a, some music playing time in yeah. until it felt right for you. It and it actually like, gave me professional experience mm -hmm. so I had upper hand already you know mm -hmm. the problem is with a lot of institutions now even when I went to grad school you know in years past is that you know a lot of these kids don't understand professionalism as far as how to work as an artist independently or whatever which direction you go without academia academia teaches theory yeah. and you have a lot of professors in there that are actual well you have a percentage that are working artists and you have a percentage that are veterans or retired artists and then you have a percentage of failed artists mm -hmm. who never achieved their dreams of being an artist or pushing their pursuing what mm -hmm. they wanted to do so they kind of take a, a negative turn in an approach of teaching you and kind of spreading toxicity to you those are the bitter cats yeah exactly you know? <laughs> it doesn't matter what form fashion style music genre whatever it is yeah you know? that goes across all the arts man that's yeah. like writing painting yeah uh those are truths. Yeah. So you entered into the college world, and then at that point, like, with your playing and, and thinking about improvisation, which is the focus of, that we're interested in. Right. Where were you at with that? Like, what did, what did uh, improv improvisation mean to you, and how did you develop your voice through, through that? Well, the thing is, I never really focused on... I mean, improvising was something I learned from a terminology standpoint in high school, dealing with jazz combo. But as far as doing it, I've been doing it forever. Just didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I teach my students now, in my low elementary kids' students, I teach after school as well, mm -hmm. as well as university. And I always... Uh, and then I deal with the grown adults when I meet various colleagues in the game. I said, can you remember... The first time you ever picked up a trumpet or clarinet or saxophone and how it felt. And most guys can't remember that feeling. Mm. They became so entrapped into the nuances mm. and just blowing your brains out, making noise, not knowing what you know how to do, mm -hmm. fingering, you're figuring out notes, and, or if you got music that you read, you go off the path of the music and play something else different. All that's improvising. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the fun part of it. And we tend to get locked into a grid matrix, especially when we get into academia settings of improvising 
and it tends to take away the spontaneity, the natural feel of it, and the creativity, you know. So dealing with the improvising, uh, you know, post-high school, undergraduate years, it was something I wanted to do, something I liked doing. Then it's getting to now what we say, language, syntax. Hmm. So I knew that I wanted to get chops, let's say, stronger or learn a vocabulary stronger. Hmm. And there's only but so much you can do when you self-teach yourself. So that's when I chose the academic route to go in there and not just become a performer. I don't need a degree in performance. Mm-hmm. So I actually uh, ended up taking a degree as far as undergrad called professional music, which I kind of pulled to get my own major and extract the classes I want to take. And in that process, you know, dealt with various instructors and getting into private instruction lessons with the bebop and things. Was this graduate school then? Undergrad. Are you moving into? Okay, undergrad, this yeah. is still undergrad. I went to Berkeley College of Music for undergrad. Okay. Yeah. And a very profound institution. You know, all institutions have their pros and cons, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's a great foundation, a great school for a technical advancement, mm-hmm. you know, to get your fundamentals in order. You know, when it gets into the creative aspect, that's another story. Because, you know, it's aesthetically, they have a slogan where it's nothing conservatory about it, which in itself is not always accurate. It's mm-hmm. a jazz conservatory. The foundation of harmony and things you learn in Berkeley is jazz. So it is really undermined as a conservatory, even though it's a college of music. Mm. But it has the top leading industry standard, you know, when things you want to get into industry-wise and all around different degree programs to get into. So with that right there, you know, while I was studying there with various professors and taking various classes, the improvisation uh, was growing and developing with that and the lessons getting into, you know, the syntax language of bebop. You know, learning more how to get across chord changes and all those different things like that, you know, which I knew already, but getting into a deeper context. Mm-hmm. Getting a yeah. stronger yeah. ability inside. Yeah. And maybe make that vocabulary part of your own yeah. syntax so that, and language so that you're expressing. Yeah, yeah I dig and what then you're saying. That's when now I have a few instructors who, uh, I remember one instructor I had named Ron Mahdi, who uh, was a great, great bassist. Mm. And, uh, you know, he has, in his first entry class, in his, we taught an ensemble class, so we get to govern an ensemble. Mm-hmm. He would lay out a whole spreadsheet of players. Like, he'll ask you, okay, who do you like to listen to right now? Okay, well then you need to know who they listen to. And he'll take you on a journey where your home assignment, your work would be going back and listening to these players who inspired. And that's a very beautiful assignment and a very beautiful way of discovering new information. Because everyone is coming from another source. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we have a lot of us that's in the train, but train was listening to John Gilmore. You know, Johnny Hodges, he listened to a lot of people, you know, a lot of people influence him, you know. But we don't tend to look at the people who are influencing you. We get caught into that one person itself. Mm-hmm. So there's a lineage, you know, it goes all the way back. Well said, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then, let, maybe jumping ahead. A little bit uh, to grad school, yeah. And you, what did you want out of that experience for? Well, grad school yourself? was uh, going to the next round of uh, obtaining a master's, of course, to be able to move fluently uh, career-wise, and also new language, new information. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as being acculturated in this music, I dealt with all idioms. In a household, it wasn't just R&B and jazz playing. I listened to world music. I had Sudanese music, 
mm-hmm. Egyptian music, you know, uh, Unkatum, you hear Ethiopian music in my household, you know, reggae, soca calypso, you name it. I had the whole African diaspora in the continent, mm. even some Asiatic music. So I was well diverse in hearing that and being brought up in that. So mm-hmm. now it got to the point where I wanted to go deeper with that music and learn how to even play that music. And there's always been, you know, key players in various cultural uh, ethnicities that's around, you know, and um, that are teaching private instruction through various mediums and systems. You know, but it's, ironically, it seemed that, you know, I sit and question myself with a couple of colleagues recently. They said, man, what happened to, like, there was a time that you could find, like, maybe 20 wood players, mm-hmm. so many Turkish guys, or doing, and then it seemed like after 9 11, everybody disappeared, you know, due to no falling on. And, when we talk about this music, you know, we cannot have this music without the social political piece that come along with it. A lot of people love the music and love what great artists do, but they don't want to deal with the social politics coming along with it. You know, so the rural music was something uh I hate to using use that term rural music. That's a broad term, it's just really ignorance. You know, just like using jazz, you know. But yeah, for lack I of better terms for that, you know, when we deal with those various music forms, you know, getting into wanting to learn how to necessarily play a nay flute or oud or uh, Chinese Piper, you know, something like that, or, you know, something indigenous, you know. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And, you know, and I'm already coming out of disrespect with Jembe and Jun Jun playing, in, uh, you know, Mende, you know, Mali and Guinean style of music and Kunga out of Cuba, mm-hmm. you know, learning that right there. And now on a read perspective, you know, you hear guys like Youssef Latif, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Train, of course, you know, and these different guys are taking these context of going eastern with the music you know and now it's going to the next level like okay, not just about blowing your brains out on this raga or trying to interpret a raga in what we call jazz army let's actually learn what a raga is and learn how to play it and try to play the microtonal quarter tone system it is and get out that western mindset you know and that's where the grad school came in and of course uh great with Dr. Leo Smith who I studied with Dan in his program that he had created called African American Improvisational Music I began to uh, study his syntax in his language called Ultramaximation, which is a language and graph notated system that he uh, developed. And I don't want to just limit to the graph notation. It's a whole language that he's developed musically, taking out a standard music notation. And it opened the realm up to give you a lot of creative ideas, a lot of new perceptions, new ideas to add on to what you have. And really, when you go to grad school, it's really to polish what you already have, you know, to add on more to your plate. And in the process of dealing with that as a major and studying that information also took uh, Japanese gamelan as well. And because uh, I always wanted to get into gamelan from self discovering one day on the radio, you know. And, uh, you know, it took a little bit of everything, a little bit, you have a little bit of everything out there, Indian music, a little bit of everything. So you're kind of like in a, a nice area to get well developed in a lot of great, great music, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Then uh, I hear what you're saying on that. That's very broad minded. Yeah. Which is, in a lot of ways, the opposite of what uh, <clears throat> graduate school can be, which is a very focusing. Well, that's why I chose laser. You, it was a it was a path set chose. it up for yourself. Yeah, because many of the grad programs I uh, well I applied for a few, but as I began to really get into the core of it, mm-hmm. it really was either you're going to be either classical, you're going to be jazz. There was no gray area in between. I mean, you had contemporary improv and I. I mean, New England Conservatory, you had Wesleyan with their program, you know, just to name a few. Uh, Kyle Arts, of course, uh, didn't know about Bart in New York at the time. 
But there are institutions around where you can get into your avant-garde or for the lack of better terms or more free experimental creative forms of music mm -hmm. breaking out of the straight traditional classical period of music or, you know, jazz. You know, you had a... And so that right there was what I was looking for and that's what I found. Mm -hmm. You know, to give me the leeway to get in something without being restricted, you know. And then you moved into uh, teaching. Yes. That's what you're doing now. As, yes. As well as performing. Yes. And <clears throat> I was interested in some of the things you wrote about your perspective that you hinted on a little earlier about uh, people being drawn into the gorgeousness of the music yes. without wanting or taking part in the social, yeah, cultural yeah. angle. And uh, I was wondering if you, it just put me in mind of wanting your reaction to uh, a documentary by Ken Burns that was just called Jazz, I think. Yes. And then there's like a whole ton of Winton Marsalis in it. I would love to just hear you riff on... Well... With someone who knows oh, or is, has dealt within sort of the historical context of, of that, how you reacted to that film, because that kind well, of Well, the book and the films, it has a lot of controversy, uh... It's a great chronological. The book is actually better than the film because the book gives you more detail. Mm. And he did a great job chronologically to the best of his ability of uh, really documenting as far as back as he could go with the music and the evolutionary black American music, you know, unto the present. Uh, it's just that it really could have went more in depth with dealing with more players than focusing primarily on Armstrong, Duke, and a few other people in the book. You know, uh, other than that, it's a fairly good book to really deal with a uh, entry-level way of learning about the music. Now, when we get into the in-depth part of that system or this music, cultural understanding of black American music, misnomed the jazz, we understand that it's coming out of the spirituals, the Negro spirituals in the field, and we're dealing with all that collaboration right there. As I teach my students in the university now, when you know most places you go, and I've seen and witnessed this, you're going to get it taught from two different perspectives. And you're going to deal with mostly a academic perspective of uh, this romanticized idea that Europeans and Africans came together, made love, kissed hell hands, and all of a sudden, boom, jazz begun. <laughs> they don't want to deal with the in-between part, the transatlantic holocaust, or the transatlantic slave trade. The cultural differences with that right there. They don't want to deal with that part. Uh, a lot of people do that. And then you have the ones who do know that and do bring that into conversation and deal with that and thus uh, still continue research on like, you know, with the Jolly Griots and the Blues and things like that, just as an example, you know, and a connection between the Americas to the islands and to the continent itself of Africa itself, you know. So a lot of times we become so engulfed with the... Uh, beauty of the music and forget about how the music development came about through the hardships and difficulties of people of America you know we want to talk about blues and jazz and James Brown but don't want to talk about civil rights the unjust the inhumanities to Africans in America you know 
throughout post-slavery and things like that. Reconstruction on to this point right there. Now, when you say we don't want to talk about it, how are you experiencing that? Because, you know, some people, that's an important part of what they're their perceptions are and right. for other people it's not but I haven't run into too many where it's not right right but you're running into that what like uh, for from college students or not really not really but I have encountered in the past you mm. know and uh, you have uh, this music now you know has far been put into academic context jazz for the lack of better terms mm-hmm. institutionalized and when we get into that, you have institutions where there's all white faculty and no African Americans or black Americans in the faculty at all teaching this music. You have a faculty of guys who have never experienced playing blues, learn from a book how to play blues, and then adjudicate one applying for an application if you're applying as a student or as faculty members based on theory and books and not really dealing with the music, never played with the actual people dealing with the music in the club scene or what mm-hmm. it may be, or experience this music. So you're seeing, like in the context of academia, yeah. is, is one of... That's one context. That, that, yeah. Yeah. You ran into that more. Yeah, and then you have also, uh, just in general, playing and various people have ran into various circles, you know, that some people are ignorant due to the fact they just don't know. Mm-hmm. And then some hold on still to their own ideological ways of how they look at other unequal diversity or, you know, let's be, get down to the real of uh, race relations. You know, one being supreme or the other. And say, yeah, I love jazz music, but I am not going to deal with a black person. I don't care about the black people in the ghetto. I just love this music. And I don't want to deal with the black people in the ghetto not understanding how hip-hop even developed in the hoods, you know, same like jazz and many other black American forms or music in the islands as well, you know, that context. And it becomes now a indifference of appropriation sometimes. And that goes for any form of music. I mean, I've had colleagues, it's the same thing for any one of us, even if we go into playing Asiatic systems of music. You know, any music, oh man, it's cool, I like this, what they're doing on tablets, but I don't care about why they're playing a rhythm, a, a tala a certain way, or a rock a certain way, mm-hmm. based on the way the sun is positioned in the sky, or mm-hmm. based on a specific deity, you know, mm-hmm. what we did with Hindu. I don't care about that. I just like the beat. Mm-hmm. It just sounds good and sounds cool. I yeah. think that's a reasonable uh, initial reaction right. to art. Right. Because it's, it may hit you on a much more visceral level. Like yeah. if you hear Kuali music and it can just light you up. Right. And you don't even know what's being said or right. why. And it's interesting like to have zero... Right, information, but such a strong connection to what is happening just purely musically. I think maybe then cats might go in through the back door right. and find out, well, what is it that makes this right. tick and what are they trying to say? I mean, it's a, right. it's a timing thing for people too, I think. Right. Yeah. It is. And some, again, that's for those who are seeking the knowledge and information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, there are those who clearly just eradicate that all the way. That's mental. Yeah. I can't believe that part. It exists. There's really? people who do not care or have any concern or knowledge or want to know 
the in-depth cultural language of, a, of music. It's just about it makes me feel good or it sounds cool and whatever it may be, you know. And That's surprising. But everybody yeah. has their own methodologies out of the operating society, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. That is. Uh... That's surprising to me. Yeah. Oh, uh, and would be difficult to deal with. I'll give you an example. That's like uh, someone picking up a bata drum, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, it gets into a gray area when we deal with the secular and traditional sacred forms of the music. You have a lot of drums, specifically when we deal with the drum. Drums used ritualistically for various ceremonies. And you have in the day and time now, a lot of people are attracted to the drum because it's cool to beat on and get in the drum circle and hit on. Buy a drum because it looks cool and sounds good. You might have heard a record of Santana, somebody, just as an example, throw it out there. Mm-hmm. Whatever percussion player on there, whoever. You know, and then when you buy a drum, you might have a person who's actually a practitioner, such as like dealing with uh, Yoruba, Ifa, you know, Santeria, or Palo, or whatever system coming out there as an example, you know, or Arara, or Haitian Voodoo. You know, and may hold these drums in a sacred form. And you come along and start banging on a drum out of context, it's disrespectful. You know, and you're like, look, I'm buying a bata because I just like the sound of it. I don't care about what it's used for historically, how it's used, whatever like that. Mm. And you have a right to play whatever you want to play. You have a right to play a drum. You yeah. have a right to do it, but you should still know where the drum comes from, the history of it, and what it's used for. You understand its function. You will want to know. You know. That's what I would think that you would want to know. You'd... Right. I mean, there's, I suppose there's some stuff you wouldn't want to know, but I, yeah, it's hard know. to imagine. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting thing. So, uh, where do you see like? So in your in your concert tonight, I did hear uh, influences from spirituals. Yes. That even were quoted and. Uh, and as a group, you're hearing that together and moving that and exploring within that. Yes. And I really, really dug that mm. to see a trio working together mm-hmm. without, you know, it's an interesting form of improvisation. Yeah. Like to hear, hear something like that and then know how to react to it and what makes sense to bring. Yeah, right. I really heard... Uh, it comes with development of seasoning and listening. You know, understanding the in-between sound, there's silence. You know, um, you have to know how to listen. You know, a lot of times uh, in various improvisational situations, it becomes what we call a circle jerk or a noise fest where everybody just focus on getting their particular musical orgasm off and not really worrying about creating music together as a group or listening to each other and really building up a layer or a vision or whatever like that. And there's times where, as an individual, you say, I want to get my shit off, you know, for lack of better terms, or get my thing off and I care about nobody else, you know, but you really want to work as a unit, not as an individualist, you know. And it comes with wisdom, age and reasoning you know and discipline something you learn and obtain over years you know because mm-hmm. there's a lot of musicians I call it having diarrhea of the hands and mouth you know they just don't know when to keep quiet on the instrument you know they play too much mm. and it doesn't just 
happens in the, for the lack of better terms, experimental, avant-garde, creative world, free world, mm-hmm. even in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, jazz players all the time. Look what I can do. They're playing all over. Okay, yeah, 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 you play a thousand notes. But is a thousand notes going to impress a person or is how you voice and phrase one or two notes mm-hmm. that make more of an impact? Those two notes make more of an impact as much as the thousand notes you play. Mm-hmm. But you learn it over time. Mm-hmm. You know, some don't get it, some do. You know. The one or two notes I heard a lot from you and it seemed like you focus on like, on that as it's more supportive to the trio. Yes. Does it feel like that to you when you're well, the trio, it's a magical thing because you're dealing with a triad. Mm-hmm. So every time you add on a person or subtract, you're dealing with personality and spiritual energy and things transpire. As a trio, I have two things to play off. There's many things to deal with. An example would be rhythm. He has sound and tone in his drums, the way his drums are tuned. Between his cymbal, each stroke, how he approaches the drum, how he plays and interprets the drum. Her voice, how she weaves and ebbs and flows and different things in her voice. So that's a wealth of vocabulary to interact with between those two. And then bring my own into that by feeding off of those two mm. and then adding my own interpretation to that without overpowering that. When you work with a vocalist, it's a very sacred thing because you can easily overpower a vocalist sometimes, especially as a horn player and a drummer. Mm-hmm. So we knowing, when we listen to each other, knowing how to fall back and allow the vocalist to have space. And how we all have moments of sonic moments where we get strong and, you know, soft. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful things can happen. Yes. And they certainly did tonight. Yes. I dug it quite a bit. So I'll just wrap it up and say, Jamal, thanks a lot for coming through. Thank and you. Playing here Thank you. at the Kyber Pass. Yeah. All right. All right. Hopefully I shall return uh, in the near future uh, with my organic trio. Okay. Um, we just released a new album last year called Psalms of Baltimore. And we have our previous album released called Ancestral Communion, Communion sorry, mm-hmm. uh, back in 2015. Okay. And ironically, we released that during the 50th anniversary celebration for the AACM, Dang. which we celebrated in D.C. that year, throughout the year. And uh, there was a Capital Bop Jazz Festival when we debuted and released the album. Well, be sure to let us know if you get back around this way we'd love to host you here sure no problem yeah all right thank you well there we have it this week cover pass podcast bringing you improvisers that have come through the kyber pass thursday night music series that focuses on bringing you the deepest cats we can. This week we had Jamal Moore as our interviewee coming from Baltimore uh, as part of a tour uh, playing for us and speaking with us about his work. I'd like to thank him for a great interview. Uh, the concert was Jamal Moore on saxophones, various flutes, percussion. Davu Seru on percussion, drum kit. And on vocal, Monkwe Ndozi 
uh, providing the ethereal. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Next week, we will have interview and performance from Milo Fine. Until then, this is Paul Metzger signing off. And thank you for listening.